Welcome to the Terry Project Podcast on CITR 101.9 FM at the University of British Columbia. I'm your host, Gordon Caddick. And I'm your assistant host, Sam Fenn. Actually, assistant to the host, Sam. Thought it was assistant host. I'm not so sure. Today, we look at food and power, the politics of what we eat. Uh, we begin by speaking with Marcy Norton, a professor of history at George Washington University, who talks to us about the role of tobacco and chocolate in the colonization of the New World. Then we speak to nutritionist Gwen Chapman, who looks at the Canadian food system and Canadian food culture, concluding by telling Sam and I what to have for lunch. Then we speak with uh, some of your favorite restaurateurs from around Vancouver. All that and more coming up on today's Terry Project Podcast. Welcome to the Terry Project Podcast on CITR 101.9 FM at the University of British Columbia. Today I'm joined with Marcy Norton, Professor of History at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Marcy Norton is the author of Sacred Gifts, Profound Pleasures, A History of Tobacco and Chocolate. This book sheds light on the encounter between the New World and the Old World by explaining how American Indian goods became European commodities of mass consumption. Marcy, in your article, Tasting Empire, you argue that Spanish colonizers developed a taste for Mesoamerican chocolate and tobacco. How do you think chocolate can help us better understand this colonial period? Well, um, in a number of different levels, I think that there has long been a tendency to see the dynamics of colonization as going only in one direction, a story of Europeans arriving in the Americas and bringing their culture with them and imposing it there. And uh, chocolate and tobacco as well, just on the face of it, fly in the face of that narrative because they were elements of native culture that come back to Europe. And that was sort of what got me interested in this. One of the reasons I became interested in this from the beginning is what does that tell us about this, this story of early globalization? Um, what initially compelled you to look at taste and consumption? And in your opinion, what does consumption have to do with power? In, in, the, in the case of, of chocolate, it seemed to go against that aspect of Borgia's argument that um, taste sort of automatically follows uh, existing social structure and hierarchies because, in this case, the colonizers took on the taste of the colonized. So this created some problems for them. They, they, were, they were quite aware of this and self-conscious of it initially within um, colonizers in the Americas who were trying to sort of make sense of what their identities were when they were surrounded demographically and culturally by Indian culture, basically, in, in Mesoamerica. And then once those tastes traveled to Europe, the same process repeated itself among Europeans. And so there was this kind of tension between what they, they knew to be the case, that they had adopted these habits, and their own ideologies of conquest that made it, and in which they were continually sort of asserting their own superiority, and, and then that produced some effects from there. Could, could you maybe um, briefly explain the process by which uh, chocolate actually made it back to the old world? It, it really, in some ways, it, it begins from the earliest days of conquest. When the Spanish arrived in the Americas, 
they weren't looking for chocolate or for tobacco because they didn't know about them. So you can't really go looking for something that you don't know that exists. And their initial years in the Americas, uh, the way I describe it, had a sort of twofold and somewhat contradictory um, character to it. One of them was that they, especially you know, in the very initial expeditions, were in a very vulnerable situation. And one of their tactics was to make alliances with natives at minimum for information, but also for food and military support from, from native allies. And, and they had to be very good tacticians and diplomats. Our, our vision is usually just of them as sort of these um, brutal conquerors, which is also true, but that was only one part of the story. And, and so in order to make these alliances, they actually had to be, in some sense, very culturally sensitive, as ironic as that might sound. And their exposure to tobacco and chocolate came in these early contexts because for um, Mesoamericans and, and other Native peoples in terms of tobacco, both of these goods were quintessentially emblematic of diplomacy. So they, there was, they were going to be exposed to it over and over again in these high-level meetings. And so that was their sort of initial exposure. And as I argue in the article in the book, um, they weren't initially very taken with it at all, quite the opposite. They, they were, it was very unusual, and, and the early reports are that they found it repulsive. But over time, some of them did start to, to, to take a tasting to it. And then the second phase occurs when they're firmly in control as colonizing powers and, and are imposing their sort of regime on native subjects. But even at that point, we're, when we're talking in Mesoamerica, mid-16th century, late-16th century, there's still a cultural and demographic minority. And um, it's a very male-conquering society, and they're dependent on native women as concubines, as wives. Um, once they start having children and maybe start bringing their uh, Europeans over to marry, then as nurses and servants. And in that context, they also start to, uh, they're just surrounded by this material culture and, and they acquire these tastes. So that's the sort of first phase as these become tastes among the, the, the Spanish colonizers within the Americas. And then the next phase is well, what happens to bring this back to Europe. And my argument there is that, you know, on, there's erratic and idiosyncratic appearances of both of these goods from, from the earliest ages, and you, you can find references to, to both goods almost immediately. But that's not sufficient for it to be um, a genuine phenomena or something to actually fuel a trade in these goods. And for that to happen, you need a kind of critical mass of consumers within Europe. And I identify kind of vanguard groups that make that possible. Not surprisingly, these include colonial officials and traders. Somewhat maybe more surprisingly to our modern ears are also clergy, and because these are, are groups who are doing a lot of travel back and forth between the two hemispheres. And once you have these kind of vanguard users, these in modern lingo, these first adopters, then from there you have the um, 
the conditions for it to, to sort of spread more widely in society and to trickle up into the highest echelons and also trickle down to a certain degree as well. In the, in the case of tobacco, it actually also travels not just with these elite groups, but also with very plebeian commoners, particularly among sailors. We're here with uh, Marcy Norton on the Terry Project podcast talking about how chocolate and tobacco can help us better understand the colonial period. Uh, Marcy, you spoke to how there was this tension of trying to um, sell the, the project the, the products of the colonized to the colonizers uh, and how um, there was a difficulty in, in selling that to people. How did that process um, come about? How did the sort of upper echelon, the first adopters that you spoke to, um, get around that tension of, of using their products? The way I see it is initially it kind of happened despite themselves. They weren't they weren't kind of thinking like, oh, I shouldn't consume this. It's an Indian thing. They're, they're, they're just doing it. You know, they're, they're um, in the Americas. They're, it, it's in their, it's literally in their houses and um, in the marketplace when they're traveling around. And it, it becomes more of a, of a problem when you could say that intellectuals or moral and medical authorities start to sort of think about it. And it, and, it, and it appears in very concrete ways. So in the colonial context, when, we're, when it's still mainly a phenomena among, um, among European colonizers in what we would today call Mexico in, in the case of chocolate, uh, there, there's a pre-existing concern about going native. And they, you could, you could, you know, to put it simply, their people who are living in Europe start to see the European colonizers as inferior to them because they've gotten away from sort of the metropole, and there's a whole kind of discourse around um, around cultural inferiority of Creoles. And one of the things that these people are that in, in Europe are quick to point to is the material culture that they've they've adopted and so that makes these these colonial um creoles very self-conscious about it and need to defend about it so that that's sort of what explains the the defensiveness at some level and, and their need to report back on it um they are also aware so on the one hand they're being defensive about european criticisms of their potential inferiority they're also aware that among their milieu there are many uh, Creoles who are going even farther, and, and in some ways they they're um, quite intentionally adopting aspects of, of of what we might call Indian culture. An example of that would be of people who are seeking out um, medical or emotional assistance from sort of Indian shamans, and so they have their own kind of I think worries, like well, what what is different about us using chocolate and tobacco from these people who are seeking out shamans. So part of the context in which this discourse defending their use emerges is from both the, they're, they're kind of being stuck on, on both sides for that reason. And once it gets to Europe, um, there, it actually, there's a, I mean, there's an awareness all of a sudden it seems like everyone's consuming tobacco. Everyone, at least of a certain echelon, is consuming chocolate. And that it makes both theologians and doctors 
start to, physicians start to say, well, is this good for us? Are there moral qualms? And the more they start to research it, it actually becomes almost more alarming for them because an earlier era of writers identified very firmly uh, tobacco in particular, but chocolate as well, as being quintessentially Indian. So they're, they're, again, they're kind of stuck with their own writings that have have established them, these as sort of emblems of, of Indian culture mm. and how to make sense of it. Do you find that in the uh, historical source material there's um, much attention to the uh, psychopharmacological properties of tobacco and chocolate. Is that part of the awareness that the colonizers had of these products, or for, or for that matter, the people of the New World? Oh, absolutely. Both the sources we have for native views, which are somewhat you know limited, but but still rich and suggestive, and also for Europeans, they are very aware and articulate and interested in um, the kind of psychotropic, mood-changing properties of, of both substances. And to our modern ears, I mean, it, it's chocolate as, as much, I would say, as tobacco. I mean, we tend to think of, you know, tobacco kind of quickly in that category, but less so chocolate. But chocolate, they're, they're, you know, they talk about it as this major mood uplifter and invigorating stimulant um, language like that and, and tobacco as well is something that the memory becomes enhanced um, uh, and a, a sort of peacefulness comes over the body and and, um, and things like that. I mean, I, I could read to you an example of, 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 of a source like that if you wanted me to. Or Yeah, would you? That would be really sure. interesting. This is, this is my favorite one for okay. chocolate, actually. Um, so this is a, an early 18th century man describing the effect of chocolate. The empty breast is filled with a heavenly gift and a vital heat penetrates to the marrow of the bones. In an instant, the mind strengthens upon contact with a soft vapor and the tired members are reinvigorated with a vitalizing strength. When you, the chocolate, glide over the throat, a myriad of preoccupations distance themselves from the heart. The corrosive restlessness flees. You furnish suffering men with desired rest and dissolve the pangs of sadness. You are the nourishing beverage of the good heart and fine mind. Not only do you provide one with happiness, but to others but to others a slightly vigor. Chocolate introduces life-giving sap into the drop-struck medulla. It restores the strength and gives new breath to the spirit. Wow, that's incredibly evocative. They should really put that in the back of Hershey bars. <laughs> <laughs> Marcy, have you tasted unsweetened chocolate the way it was prepared in the 16th century? What does it taste like, look like? It's, well, I've, I can't say, I mean, I don't have a time travel machine, so I can't say I've tasted it as it was, but I have tasted modern efforts to reproduce it. And so, and, and I want to actually emphasize that the way that chocolate was emphasized, uh, um, the way chocolate was consumed by pre-Columbian peoples and also um, the Spanish colonizers who, who imitated them in the 16th and 17th centuries. Sometimes it was not sweetened, but it actually often was sweetened, not with sugar necessarily, but with um, agave sweetener and honey. Mm. So that's kind of a, you know, a, a misconception that, the, that Europeans were the inventors of sweetened chocolate. Mm. But mm. the thing, um, I would describe it, I mean, I think it, it comes closest to our 
the way that we drink coffee or like a black coffee, which is um, then added with spices, there's that bitter quality with a potentially a touch of sweetness and then really essential to the experience um, for, for many consumers was the addition of uh, floral spices. So I call it the floral triumvirate. Um, one of them is very well known to us, vanilla, but then there were two others that were commonly used with the, um, these Mesoamerican flower spices that are you know, very hard to find nowadays. And so it had a real floral aroma. And then it was also, uh, the, uh, there was an addition of, of acciote or acciote, um, which gave it a red quality and a, a slight musky undertone. And then really, really important to it was also this kind of um, frothy head on top of this foamy, foamy topping. Only some of those qualities have come through in the modern renditions I've had, but definitely the floral aspect. And also, I forgot to mention the importance of chili pepper, which, which gives it a kind of a really nice, um, warm feeling on the throat. Mm. Kind of reminds me of like a whiskey swig or something like that, whereas you have this, you know, bitter floral experience. And then also this, this kind of warming quality that goes with the, the chili pepper. Did you enjoy it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of, the, one of the things that's so compelling about your book, Sacred Gifts, uh, Profane Pleasures, is um, the way you, you capture the sort of cultural tastes of your historical subjects. Um, so here comes the historical methodological question. Um, what sort of sources helped you get inside of uh, 15th century minds and taste buds? And I guess more to the point, how do you get past the textuality of your sources to get at um, the practices and experiences of your historical subjects? Right. Well, I would say that... I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to think back. Like, how much was I purposely trying to do that or how much did the sources themselves sort of... I mean, I, I would say I that was something that... I was I was interested in before I even started of um, of as you say getting beyond the textuality and knowing that from my own lived experience that so much of what makes who we are has to do with the body you know and it's not just about our the thoughts that we have but and how and even the thoughts that we do have are processed by bodily experiences and the way that memories you know, are held in the body and, and ideas are much more strongly if, if they sort of have a place there. So I, I guess I already had that as an interest. Um, and then it, the, the sort, it, once, once I think I was, had that in mind, it, it really jumped out of the sources, to be honest. I didn't have to look that far. So, for instance, for trying to reconstruct something about um, pre-Hispanic Indian experiences. A, a really key source for Mesoamerica was uh, a manuscript known as the Florentine Codex, which was the result of a missionary ethnography project by the, uh, a cleric named Bernardino de Sahagún, who worked with Indian collaborators in order to kind of basically reconstruct the, the pre-conquest past, as well, as well as the conquest period. And so he, you know, he worked with his assistants to interview um, people who had memories who'd, who'd lived before and after the conquest. 
And they would describe these festivals where tobacco and chocolate were, you know, absolutely central to it. And it, it just kind of leapt off the page in, in the descriptions itself of, and, and the sort of repetition of it. And, and little offhand phrases that would conjure up a whole world, like, for instance, in, in describing um, the chocolate that, that those with less resources would consume, they would say, oh, the foam would just break up and the foam was only fit for water flies, you know? And, <laughs> and in a phrase like that, you actually, it tells you so much about how much they cared about the foam itself, right? But that a way of, <laughs> of criticizing, of, you know, this, that there's a whole language around bad quality foam. Um, and, and similar, like, a, you know, in another place in the text, it would mention a proverb of, of chocolate being like blood and, and something that gives life. And, and again, the fact that that itself was a proverb could give you this it, one little peek but opens a, a much larger window into the society. And I think once I had that framework in mind and then looking at European sources, a lot of equivalents started popping off, off the page or off the painting as well, I should say. I mean, visual sources that represented still lives of chocolate um, the, it, it was very, um, just to give you one example, it became very conventional to always show a Molinillo, which was how colonial peoples and then Europeans produced the foam. And that constancy and the importance of foam was, was really evocative for me. So it was in a very uh, discussed or, or represented in a very different way than in the pre-Columbian sources. But it also opens up this little window in the value of that. So that's, that's just one um, example, but just these little phrases here and there that, that gave you some sense of the, of the sensory value that people placed upon it. Back.
lost in the supermarket I can no longer shop happily I came in here for the special offer Counting personality I'm now lost in the supermarket I can no longer shop happily I came in here for a special offer Counting personality I'm all lost in the Access to money during the studies at UBC will most likely be limited, but it is a priority of the AMS Food Bank to ensure your access to food is not. The AMS Food Bank provides emergency food relief seven days a week for all UBC students. To volunteer with the Food Bank or for inquiries about how to take advantage of the services provided, contact them at foodbank at ams.ubc.ca. For more information, find the AMS Food Bank on Facebook or feel free to visit anytime across from the Wellness Center and Sprouts. Welcome back to the Terry Project Podcast on CITR 101.9 FM. I'm on the phone with Professor Gwen Chapman. Professor Chapman is a nutritionist here at the University of British Columbia. Today, we're going to be speaking about the decisions that we make in the grocery store. How aware are we about the moral and nutritional implications of our food choices? I think that Canadians are generally quite aware, certainly of the nutritional importance of what they eat and the relationship between what they put into their bodies and health. Uh, it's pretty taken for granted by, I would think, most people in Canada that uh, there are foods that help us in um, making our bodies healthy and there are foods that might be detrimental to that. I would go on to say that that is only one of many factors that people think about in relation to food. And while we may be aware of health and uh, food, it is probably not the most important factor in deciding what we will actually eat. What might be some of the other factors that people have in their mind, you know, when they walk through Safeway and are deciding what to put in the cart? For most people, it seems that the most important conditions are, first of all, taste. People want to eat foods that they like, uh, foods that they perceive as enjoyable, uh, meeting their food preferences. People also generally want foods that are convenient, aren't going to take a lot of time to prepare, probably foods that are familiar to them, uh, foods that they can afford. So convenience and cost are also usually you know more important than the health considerations or or the ethical consideration how right? does gender and identity shape the way we consume and and why are these categories important to thinking about uh consumption gender is very important when it comes to food uh Food is a, a very sort of gendered category at least in our society it tends to be 
as a whole associated with women. So women take on a disproportionate amount of the work of in the in the household. So they tend to do more of the shopping, most of the cooking, uh, and and certainly most of the household food management. The other for women has been body image, and so women are much more or have been much more concerned about maintaining a certain body size through food so that for women, healthy eating and uh, diet restriction or eating in a way to uh, maintain a low body weight, are, those are, are kind of almost the same thing. <laughs> so healthy eating can be a code word for dieting, for example. Whereas for men, food uh, can be more about building muscle, giving energy, uh, bodybuilding kinds of things, and also certainly less of an interest in healthy eating, especially when men are maybe out in the public sphere. Uh, manly ways of eating are quite different from more feminine way eating uh, and healthy eating can be more associated with women. Have we not seen any budging on this issue uh, with with the sexualization of uh, masculine culture um, and and living in sort of um, a, a more feminist society? I think we're progressing somewhat on these issues. So maybe 40 years ago or 50 years ago, we would almost see men shopping or cooking, uh, whereas now certainly men are becoming more involved in, in those aspects of food work. However, in the studies that we've done, when we've sort of really looked at who's doing the bulk of the work, in most families it's still the women. The men may do more kinds of performance cooking. They cook when they feel like it. They cook when it works in their schedule. But when everybody's busy, nobody has much time, it's still in most cases falls to the woman to be picking up that kind of work. Things haven't changed maybe as far as we'd like to think they have, but there have been shifts. Right. Um, as, I guess uh, the next question that comes to mind is how, is how is class part of this story? In our current socioeconomic environment, um, how many Canadians really have the option to eat nutritiously and at the same time think about issues like sustainability and convenience and maybe the, the ethical ramifications of their purchase. The most recent research that I've been doing has really been trying to delve into some of those questions about social class, income, um, people sort of think about food, what they do in relation to food uh, in, in those different kinds of social locations. And we're finding that it's messy. It's not totally predictable. We do know that if people uh, have a very low income, then yeah, they can't afford to, they would often certainly say they can't afford some of the healthy food. They certainly, in terms of sustainability and so on, feel they can't afford organic food, uh, the local foods and so on. So they may just sort of walk away from those kinds of considerations. Overall in Canada, though, food is relatively cheap. So for the majority of Canadians, uh, they can afford to, to make take some of those considerations. We also talked to some very low-income people who still felt that the whether it was organic food or local food was so important that they were willing to sacrifice other areas of their budget uh, to be able to, to purchase those foods. So you certainly can't across the board claims about, you know, just because somebody is living in poverty that they're going to eat in a certain way or not care about 
food in the same way. What are obesogenic environments? Do we see any of those sorts of environments around the greater Vancouver area? The idea of an obesogenic environment is that it's an environment that encourages obesity uh, and that it leads to a propensity to overeat and be underactive. I would say that North America as a whole is an obesogenic environment, and, and Vancouver, uh, while we may have some advantages overall, it, it is also an obesogenic environment. The idea is that uh, people don't choose to be overweight or obese. There are very few people, you know, if they were sort of given the choice, that would say, yeah, I want to have that kind of body. But we live in an environment where it become, can become very difficult uh, for some people depending on, you know, genetic inheritance and, and other factors, but it can be very difficult for them to maintain what is called a healthy body weight. Uh, so we live in an environment where uh, with work schedules, with the kinds of work people are doing, much more sedentary. Uh, we may live a long way from where we work, uh, so we're spending a lot of time in, in transit, in cars. Uh, so our physical activity is low, but we're surrounded by an abundance of varied tasty foods, uh, a food system that is uh, run by the market, the food industry. They know that they want to sell their foods. In order to sell their foods, they need to make it as appealing and tasty as possible. Uh, so we're, we're surrounded by these foods and messages encouraging us to eat those foods uh, as well as an environment that discourages the, maybe the same level of physical activity that our grandparents were involved in. I wonder how much of this this problem is cultural. I mean, when we think about um, the sort of our national cuisine identity, I mean, most Canadians think that we don't really have one, right? And we tend to think right. of Europe as being a place where there's a different sort of valuing of both food and, and the process of eating. Um, is this a stereotype, or do you find that this is true? I, I think the sort of culture around food in Canada and North America is the result of many things. We are a very new nation, and we're a nation of people that come from many, many places. So we don't have the long history of a, of a specific kind of cuisine you know, m most places in the world might have, and, and you mentioned some of the European countries. So a much longer history to, to build up that kind of relationship and identity around food. The Canadian food identity is really an identity of multiculturalism, uh, cosmopolitanism, uh, foods from, from different histories and, and different traditions, uh, as well as, I think, a growing interest in local food, foods that grow well here. But, of course, that uh, is an artifact of, of the mixing of people, um, food systems, and so on. So I think that... Um, maybe the other thing is that in North America, other values have taken precedence, particularly values around economic prosperity, um, work ethics, so that people put their time and uh, energy into other things rather than sitting down and enjoying a, a long meal that, that might happen in other countries. Um, one final question. 
Um, Gordon and I haven't eaten lunch yet today, and we were going to go eat it. Do you have any advice for us on what sort of food we should think about eating? <laughs> oh, what should you eat? Well, the you know the nutritionist in me would say you need to eat uh, a variety of foods, including fresh fruits and vegetables, uh, whole grains, fat dairy products. I think, though, the main thing is to really watch the portion size because especially if you're going to be purchasing food from, uh, you know, a, a, a fast food kind of outlet, the danger usually is that the portion sizes are quite large uh, and it may be higher fat. So if you can, you know, maybe share something or, you know, split a couple of things that include that variety of foods, I'm that would be my advice. My vegetables, I'm going to chow down my vegetables. I love you most of all, my favorite vegetable. Sprouts, it's your 75-cent coffee fix in the sub. It's your source for reasonably priced, creatively named stew and vegan brownies. It's your purveyor of bicycle-delivered local produce. It's also a place where volunteers can realize their vision of responsible business and where like-minded students can explore UBC's food systems. Hark! Sprouts is currently accepting applications for next year's executive board and is encouraging ambitious, creative, and disciplined students from all faculties and year levels to apply. Come by Sprouts in the sub-basement to learn more about our projects and how to get involved. I tried to kick the ball, but my tenny flew right up. I'm red as a beat, cause I'm so embarrassed. Of course, of course, but what is dinner without a little music? Music? <laughs> Sherry and we provide the rest. Soup to soup, hot or damp, for me only live to serve. Tries the great stuff. It's delicious. Don't believe me, ask the dishes. They can sing, sing and dance, after all this dish is brown. And the dinner is never second best. So on a boat, your men, you take a glance and then you be our guest, be our guest, be our guest. I started uh, my, my apprenticeship as a chef, I was 14 years old, and the reason, um, the reason um, I 
wanted to become a chef is because my dad always wanted to be become a chef and uh, he always cooked at, at home as well and I uh, you know and I when I was younger when I was 10 12 I always was with him in the kitchen and, and look look uh, and cook, cook I was cooking with him and the problem with him and that he, he, he couldn't become a chef because during World War Two, when he was 16, 18, there was the war, and, uh, and then after the war, there was no hotel or a restaurant because you know there was no economy, and um, and then he always used to say, "The reason you became a chef because I couldn't become a chef because it's very rare that you really step after your dad's footstep, you know, like um, if he had been a chef, I might have been something else." So, but, but the reason I became a chef is because my dad loved to cook, and when I was younger, I always cooked with him in the kitchen, and then when I was 14. I was I started an apprenticeship in a in a restaurant when I was 17. I was already a chef and uh, not the chef chef or the cook. So so I started very early. No kidding. Well, that's a, that's a great story, and I have had the personal privilege to sample some of your food. So obviously, your early training has a you know has yes. I think I know, but I think it's very important because here in Canada, as you know, we have some. Sometimes you have some of those cooking schools here in town who call me up and say we have some good um, students with us. Could you come and observe with you for a day or two to to come make a stage? I say, no problem. And um, I come in the kitchen and I look at the guys, and the guys, fifty year old. I say, who are you? He says, oh, I'm the student. Okay. <laughs> So, you know, it's very, so it's much easier when you're younger to start a job because if you have any bad habits, we can, we can make sure you don't have them. We can take care of it. When you're 50 year old and if you messy, slobby, uh, not clean or whatever, it's hard to change because you have those bad habits for the past 30, 40 years. So the key to so, good cooking is get them young. Oh, yes. I think it's better when you start younger. Yeah? <laughs> and you know, so it's a tough job between your knees. It's not easy. You know, you, you work on your feet all day. It's a go, 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 go. It's not like an office job where you sit behind a desk. So when you start late in life, it's, uh, it's going to be tougher as well. How would you, since you're not from Vancouver, especially you're going to have an interesting view on this, but how would you define Vancouver cuisine, food in Vancouver? What typifies it? Yeah, compared to uh, 25 years ago, even 20 years ago, as you know, Montreal and Toronto were way ahead of us food-wise. But now I would say that Vancouver is the leading city in Canada as far as food. And um, and I believe personally, and I mean, I mean, we have our own place now here. The Crocodile is open for the past 29 years, and uh, one of the reasons we see all those changes is because of our Asian influence in uh, Vancouver, specifically. As you know, the immigration uh, here in Canada, or especially in Vancouver, have lots of. Chinese customer and lots of Chinese people live in Canada, especially Vancouver, and uh, those people know about food. And the level of the food is personally, I think, it, in Vancouver is because of the Chinese influence, meaning the Chinese people know how to eat. It's very similar to French food, meaning by that they eat everything. Like we in France, we eat everything from the from let's say from pork, we eat the pork ears, we eat the pork feet, we we do some blood uh, sausages with the pork um, blood and all that. And it's same in Chinese cuisine. Chinese cuisine, they eat the 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 eyes of the salmon, the tongue of the rabbit, and blah blah blah. So I, I would say one of the reasons that Vancouver is so um, high now in uh, cuisine is because of the very 
complete uh, population of Chinese people in Vancouver. You say on uh, on your website that Le Crocodile mixes traditional French cooking with innovative West Coast style. So yes. from that, I wanted to ask you where Le Crocodile fits into Vancouver cuisine, sort of especially okay. in the sort of globalized we, we do, sense yeah. where you see it. We do classic French food, French cuisine, like like uh, you know, like classic sauces, like a Bernays, like a Hollandaise, like a Bordelaise, like a Pinot Noir sauce, but up to, to up to date. Meaning, um, we have ingredients that that uh, everybody cooks as well in Vancouver. Like we have chicken, we have pork, we have veal, we have lamb, we have duck, but we make it a lighter that it used to be 20, 25 years ago. So if you would have still the same menu we had 25 years ago, we'd be close by now. What we do here at the Crocodile is French food, 100%, but with the West Coast touch, meaning we cook with West Coast ingredients. We don't import food from Europe. We, we, we really cook with food who are who is available in BC or in Canada. So it's... Um, it's a cuisine that when you come to, when you come into the crocodile, um, we have about 25 different main courses and about five different specials every night. And there is always something you bound to, to like to, to eat. There is too many restaurants in Vancouver. The menu are too small, and after, you know only six, seven the main courses, and there is already two or three that you don't like. And then after a while, you don't want to go back because you don't know what to eat anymore. <laughs> I think it's very important. Um, when you open after 30 years, if I reopen now for 29 years, that you give your customer choice of different uh, ingredients, different foods. But you see, like we here at the Crocodile, one of the reasons I, I believe that we still open after 29 years is we are very consistent. If your mom and dad used to come and have a, a chicken dish or, or a beef tenderloin or whatever, it's what, you know, and you and you come back a year later or a month later and you say, well, I remember I had a dish and uh, that was really nice. I want it again. And it will be very, very close or very, very close to what you had a month ago or a year or two years ago. So one of the reasons the crocodile is still open after 28 years is we are consistent. And that's number one. You see, if you, if you invite me at your house one day, and you say, Michel, I would like to cook for you. And let's say you make me a nice leg of lamb. And I taste the lamb and say, oh, wow, that was very good. A year later, we say, Michel, I invite you again. What would you like to eat? I said, you remember, a year ago, you make me like that leg of lamb. That was very good. If I come back to you a year later, and you make me the same dish that you did a year ago, that I can remember, because it's still in my memory, and it's as good as you did a year ago, I said, this lady knows how to cook. So it's very easy to change your menu every day, but you have to, you, people like consistency. People, you know, 99% of the people who go out in a restaurant in Vancouver, in those 10, 12 restaurants who are known, where people move around, they all, um, how can I say, um, they, they know in advance what they're going to eat. And it's the same in Europe. There is restaurants who are open, especially the two or three star Michelin. People come from New York, they come from London, they come from Tokyo to to, to eat that recipe, and that recipe is on the menu for the past 30, 40 years. So you have to find the balance between innovation and consistency. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's that's what so far on a touch wood, as we say, but I think that's what we have at the crocodile. And um, my last question for you is that you've mentioned that 
Vancouver food culture has really benefited from this global influence, specifically yes. from Asian influence. Correct. Yes. Um, but how has it managed to evolve um, in an original sense? Yes. I don't think there is, you know, like you go to some parts of the world like Italy or France or Spain Portugal, and then you see, oh, there is a French cuisine, obviously, Italian cuisine. I don't think there is a Canadian cuisine, or there is a Vancouver cuisine. There is a, there is a mix of, of, of different ethnic food. Like, as you know, we here are bombarded with Japanese restaurants. It's like sushi everywhere. Chinese food are very high level of Chinese restaurants. And then there is some top-notch Italians. And so, so I think it's a, a, a I would say that Vancouver cuisine is more a global cuisine. We have lots of young French Canadian from BC uh, cooks who who open their own place. Like we had Rob Fini, and we have now uh, um, um, at La Lumière, and we have uh, David Oxford at, uh, at Oxford. Those are all a local chefs who are lots of talent and he could open a restaurant anywhere in the world and he would be very successful so i would say that number one the level of um chefs in the city is very high um there's lots of good chefs in vancouver as far as what kind of food did there is a vancouver i mean maybe we're a bit influenced again by um, asian food so sometimes there is lots of asian touches and spices in the food but I, I, I have a hard time to to see um, Vancouver Vancouver food because when I go out in some restaurants as you know you go out as well it's all a mix and it's uh, the flavor is there the food is very tasty but for me to say there is a Vancouver cu cuisine I think it's a like global cuisine from all the different you know, uh, all the different backgrounds of, 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 of people who emigrated to Vancouver. So there is a lots of, you know, there is some very good young Canadian chefs from Vancouver who open Italian restaurants, and those guys were never in Italy. And they cook top-notch Italian food. Um, so so I, think, I think the number one reason why, why Vancouver is, I believe, number one in Canada um, is because of of the entire, um, the entire customer, um, the knowledge about food is so high now compared to 25 years ago. Everybody ate, let's say, the ate meat. Everything was uh, well done. Now people <laughs> eat the no, but you know what I mean. The, uh, 25 years ago was very hard to sell uh, sweetbreads, bone marrow, cauliflower, um, milk, kidneys. Now people ask to have those dishes. So the the, the people in Vancouver also travel all around the world and eat in Paris or in London or in Milan or in Switzerland. And when they come back to Vancouver, they want to eat that same food they had when they were abroad. So the, the customers now are very demanding. In the old days, 25 years ago, you could, you could get away with so-so food. Now, if you're not top-notch, you will never last.
eatery has been a uh, almost an icon of Vancouver food for quite a while now. People know about it. It's in tourist magazines. People know to go to the eatery. And in your time as a restaurateur in Vancouver, how have you seen food evolve? How have you seen the atmosphere of Vancouver food culture evolve? And how has the eatery evolved along with it? I think to keep up with uh, what people want today, again, getting back to uh, our prime goal uh, to be healthy and affordable, um, you have to roll with it. And I think that uh, yeah, just getting the freshest products at the most uh, affordable uh, prices uh, and keeping it real. Um, <laughs> really is what uh, people want. I think that uh, keeping things really uh, edgy, funky, and new is really what uh, makes our world go around that theory. Vancouver's really becoming a bigger global hub. We're getting a lot more Im- immigration coming in, and especially from the Asian countries. And the, the eatery's pretty closely linked to that because you sort of do Japanese food with a fun western twist so how do you see vancouver cuisine evolving in this air in this era of increased globalization how how do you see that asian influence continuing to play into it i think uh you know vancouver as far as like restaurants and food and sushi of course is on really leading edge uh around the world i've been uh, a traveler for a long time and anytime i go out and search for really good food, especially sushi around the world, uh, Vancouver's way ahead of the curve. I think uh, sushi is by far our most popular food uh, in the city. Uh, just to keep it fresh and new, like I said, is, is, is uh, what's going to keep you in the game. So the eatery itself uh, has been an icon because we've always been, you know, daring and always the leading edge uh, when it comes to something fucking new. What is the funnest, craziest role that you guys serve at the eatery? <laughs> oh my gosh, if I were to nail one role here. Mm-mm-mm. Well, we do something crazy with bananas. So, so to combine bananas with eel, uh, it's pretty daring, but it, it's just pretty, uh, it's a great combination. So adding fruits, if banana is a fruit, uh, <laughs> and adding uh, something scary like eel uh, works. Hey, that's one of our uh, coolest roles. Uh, but we've got more than 50 roles to choose from, and I would say that was that would be one of our That one is called the electric banana. So, <laughs> yeah, come check it out. Awesome. Okay, Randy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for uh, having me. Just have yourself a blade, so eat it. 
just eat it. You better listen, better do what you're told. You haven't even touched your tuna casserole. You better chow down, or it's gonna get cold, so eat it. I don't care if you're full, just eat it. Eat it. Open up your mouth and feed it. Have some more yogurt, have some more spam. It doesn't matter if it's fresh or canned, just eat it. Eat it. Don't you make me repeat it. Have a banana, have a whole bunch. It doesn't matter what you had for lunch, just eat it, eat it, eat it, eat it. Eat it, eat it, eat it, eat it.